Welcome to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by Team Snap and hosted by veteran soccer broadcaster Dean Linke. Uniting coaches at every level of the game, around the love of the game, we are United Soccer Coaches. Now, here's our host, Dean Linke. I am Dean Linke, and this is the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by Team Snap. Today, we spend almost an hour with Tony Miola. Three times he made it to the World Cup. He's an MLS Cup champion, an MLS MVP, one of the original soccer ambassadors in this country. Of course, part of that 1990 team that qualified for the World Cup for the first time in 40 years. He was just over in Russia, did a great job as an analyst for Fox, but what he really wants to do is coach. He tells us all about it, the good times and the bad during his journey. Of course, Division One men's soccer kicks off this week. Rob Keogh with a quick update on the games to watch in Division I men's soccer. And as always, we spend a little bit of time looking at the other divisions. Today, it's Division Three. Marcus Wood is the advocacy chair for Division Three women. He took his team, Harden Simmons, to the women's Division Three Final Four a year ago. He is all in on Division Three. You'll enjoy my time with him. Up first, though, the great Tony Miola after this message from Team Snap. Managing your club or league shouldn't feel like a second job. With Team Snap, it doesn't have to. They help customers save their time and sanity on tasks such as communication, registration, scheduling, and more. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with Team Snap. Go to teamsnap.com united. Okay, I am Dean Linke, and if you've heard me on the show, you know I love doing this podcast each and every week for United Soccer Coaches. Certainly appreciate Team Snap for their sponsorship and support of the podcast. And I love when I can go down memory lane and visit with one of the American soccer icons who went through college soccer, experienced World Cups, and now in the booth and has really done a little bit of everything. And perhaps maybe no person has done more even inside and outside of soccer than Tony Miola. He's had an interesting path and route to three World Cups, an MLS Cup championship, a pretty solid career in the booth as well. And what he really wants to do is coach. I'm talking about Tony Miola. I was able to catch up with him, albeit he was outdoors. So I do want to have one little caveat on this interview. You will hear a little bit of wind, a little bit of lack of a better word, abrasion. So it's a little bit choppy, but you'll also be able to hear each and every answer from Tony Miola. So I apologize for some of the sound quality, but stay with it because he tackles all of the issues, why he decided to try to play for the New York Jets, being left off that World Cup team getting the job at Jacksonville, then losing that job, and then his time in Russia and his ambition to return as a coach. My interview with Tony Miola comes to you right now. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap. As promised in the open, we are joined by, I guess I'm going to go ahead and say it, you know, you, when you have multiple kids, you can never say, hey, this one's my favorite or that one's my favorite. But when you spend as much time with a group like I did during the early 90s, I think you're allowed to say my favorite player for multiple reasons is Tony Miola. I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. I enjoyed my time with him. He was always accessible, always ready to help me as the press officer for the U.S. World Cup soccer team. And he's remained a good friend, great family, and he joins me now. Tony Miola, thanks for being with me. 
Hey, I appreciate it. Thank, thanks for the uh, the kind words, man. It's awfully nice. I'm really excited to spend some time with you. I want to go down memory lane. I want to hear about how things were in Russia. I want to hear about your ambition to get back into coaching, which is important. This is the United Soccer Coaches podcast, by the way. It's all about coaching, so I can't wait to get to that as well. All right, so Tony. Beginning, college soccer season has started, okay? And in fact, uh, when this airs, men's college soccer kicks off this weekend as well. And you are a Mac Herman Trophy winner at Virginia. You only played two years before turning professionally at a time when it was hard to, to turn professional, but you had the U.S. national team right there walking you up to the 1990 World Cup. But specifically, college soccer at Virginia, what did it mean to your development, both as a player and as a person? It was a really important time uh, in my life, both on and off the field. I, I was lucky enough um, to go to the U University of Virginia, and back then, if you can sort of rewind in your head a little bit what the sport was like, I mean, the ACC was the place to go, and there were a few other schools, uh, UCLA, UNLV at the time, um, Indiana, um, you know, probably missing a couple, but but for the most part, the ACC was where everybody wanted to go, and I had the opportunity to go to what was at the time considered one of the top um, the college soccer programs in the country. Although they weren't able to win a national championship, they had they'd been ranked number one, I think, ten years in a row for at least one week, um, and then it, they just couldn't get over the hump, and that was. For me, and thinking about where I wanted to go, obviously I've said before, uh, John Harks was a guy that we'd always said through high school, he was two years older than me, but we would go to the same college. You know, that's, that's kind of boyhood dream type stuff, you know, and you never really think that that's going to happen, but we were lucky enough. And then when, when I finally decided to go there, John turned pro, so we never had a chance to play together at the University of Virginia. Um, but but it was so important. It was, for me, the next step. It was the next logical step in order to improve my game. I was playing at the, you know, the top, uh, I was playing against the top uh, programs in the country. And also, I was a, a kid out of New Jersey who really hadn't been out of New Jersey all that much. And I needed to develop as a person. And having the mentorship of guys like uh, Lou Serena, Dave Sarakin, who was there as an assistant coach, Bob Bradley, uh, Bob Jenkins, who's been in the college program with U.S. Soccer's youth team for so many years. When you think about how fortunate I was to work, uh, you know, before those guys or alongside those guys every day and learn every day, and it wasn't always about soccer. It wasn't uh, – there were life lessons every single day. Um and uh, I, I think it helped mold me as a person. One of the little side notes of your time at Virginia is you also lettered for the Virginia baseball team your freshman year. I mean, you were a pretty good player. I don't think people necessarily remember that you're also drafted by the Yankees. How big was baseball in your life? Oh, it was huge. Uh, actually, I played two years there. Um, I got hurt uh, a little bit my, uh, my first year. Um, but it was it was huge for me. And by the way, it was half my scholarship. And back then, I was in a position where my parents didn't. I would never have been able to go to the University of Virginia had it not been for that dual scholarship. And 
but but all of the programs from Stanford um, to Clemson to Duke, all of the programs that I went to visit were all uh, with the idea that I would be a dual scholarship athlete. That's kind of just how it played out at the time. And um, I never thought that I would make it in soccer. I always thought I would make it in baseball. That was as I was getting to that sort of college level. There wasn't much to do after um, after college in, in the world of soccer in the U.S., and I always thought that this was going to be my path, was in baseball. And then, you know, I made in 1989. I got the call after being with the group in 1988. I got the call from Bob Gansler to be part of World Cup qualifying, and things worked out where I got an opportunity to play, and then it was kind of just took off from there. We qualified, and for the 1990 World Cup, and, and that was it. The uh, the pathway was kind of drawn out for me, and I just rolled with it. Well, indeed you rolled with it. In fact, uh, one of the things that I remember about that time, and I was so lucky and blessed to come on to soccer in the late 80s, just as you were qualifying. I was uh, interning with U.S. Soccer, actually, in Colorado Springs when you guys won down in Trinidad and Tobago. And long before Kobe Jones had the dreads and Alexi Lalas had the big red floppy hair and the beard, the true swagger man, the man who seemed to understand the moment even before it happened, was Tony Miola. I mean, Tony, you had the swagger. I'm going to call it a mullet. You had that going. You had the gloves. You had it all. It was as if you already knew what you were in the middle of. Am I right about that? Well, you call it a mullet because it was a mullet. <laughs> Just let's be clear about that. <laughs> I don't want, I don't want to mix, mix words up at all. Um, you know, it happened so fast. If you think about uh, we, we qualified November 19th. We won the national championship, or we tied the national championship with Santa Clara at Rutgers on December 3rd. I took finals a week later, and by the time I took finals, I had like four endorsement deals for gloves. Um, I had a shoe deal waiting for me. I, I had already spoke with, uh, spoken with Bruce Arena, Sunil Galati, my parents. We'd all determined that the next best route for me was to leave school. Um, and and everything just it, it, it happened so fast. I I I, I mean I'm going to tell you that it happened all within a week. And for a young kid from New Jersey who who was lucky enough uh, that his parents had enough to to put food on the table, and this this was like a whirlwind. And I and I was really lucky at that time to have, as I mentioned, Bruce Arena and Sunil Galati looking out for me and saying, okay, let, let's talk through this because I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know what I was in for. I didn't know where it was going to go. I was just kind of a, a kid happy just to be on the field and play soccer. And, you know, as I, I know we'll get into it in a little while, but as I move forward, every time I, I coach, and I've coached now over 20 years, oh, longer than that now at youth level um, or at some level, and I always, I always thought back to that, you know, the, the feeling of going on the field and, um, and and having fun and enjoying what I'm doing. And I tried to bring that to, you know, training sessions and to the young kids, but also bring a, a passion for the game that I thought was maybe missing uh, in some kids for a while, maybe missing in our culture, period. And it's, it's guys of my age group that, that kind of have to continue to help grow that, in my opinion. All right, the only part of that story that we might dispute is whether you actually did take those final exams, Tony. We'll have to double-check the fact-checker on that. 
make sure there's no fake news in there. Are we good on those? I think I think I took them. The the results <laughs> might not be great, but I think I did take them. <laughs> All right. Well, listen. So ninety to ninety four. So you go to the World Cup, big stage. I mean, it's so amazing that it's in Italy because it's well documented. The great Italian family you come from. So you couldn't ask for a better dream scenario that we get to the World Cup for the first time in forty years, and here it is in Italy, which felt like it was a red carpet for Tony Miola and the Miola family. After that, you did a little spell in England, but then they said, hey, we're going to keep making this U.S. national team a basically a pro circuit. We're going to go out to Mission Viejo, California. That was a rough stint, by the way, Tony. That was tough on us, wasn't it? Uh, Laguna de Gal. Talk about those four years, that time when basically the U.S. national team was a full-time team. Yeah, and, and we needed a direction um, in that group. And, and U.S. soccer chose Bora Milicinovic to, to be the guy to lead us in the direction. And from a guy who's, who's known to kind of to do everything on a whim, um, he, he really found a way to bring that group together. And, boy, it was not an easy task uh, with guys playing all around the world and trying to bring everything together and, and really develop a culture. He was... He was, in my opinion, the first guy that, that developed that culture of, hey, we, we need to do things differently. I know, you, you know, the modern-day game, we look at Jurgen Klinsmann and some of the questions that he's asked of U.S. soccer and, uh, and for, uh, I guess, soccer in the U.S., uh, to, to say it better. Laura asked all of these questions, you know, 100 years ago. He asked, but, but he was asking them first to the players. Um, this is what we need to do. This is how we need to act. This is what a professional does. And it was all a lesson for us. And when you're young, you think you know everything. And when you're old, you realize how much you never knew when you were young. Um, and, and it was a lesson every single day. But without that opportunity to play every day, almost uh, as, the, as a club team, um, we would never have had success at the World Cup. We were lucky we had some guys that were playing in Europe. I had decided to come back because of my work permit issues, and I also felt this obligation, and I'm, I, I'm sure at some point you and I talked about this uh, maybe more than once. I just felt this obligation in the U.S. that we needed to grow the game. And we, we always said we had two jobs. One was to play soccer, and the other one was to promote soccer every single day. And I, I, I can't remember um, exactly, but I, I know there were times where promoting the game probably felt like it was more difficult than playing the game. Okay, so, you know, when we start in those late days, you're qualifying for the 90 World Cup, and then even in 91, 92, we're happy playing at Costa Mesa College uh, at uh, the little park in St. Louis. And then all of a sudden, as we're getting closer to the World Cup, the crowds are getting bigger, we're playing in bigger venues, and then boom, the World Cup is here. And there you are, Tony Miola, between the pipes, at the Rose Bowl, among other games, Pontiac Silverdome, and of course, who could forget that great game against Brazil? But, I mean, that was a real-life phenomenon that we all experienced together with massive, massive amounts of people watching on. What are your best memories about that time, specifically when it was, in fact, World Cup time? I think my the, the best memories were uh, the ones that, that you know, you, you sat back and realized, hey, this is a group of... Uh, you know, sort of a young group of players that came together, and this was the group that Borup picked. You know, we were the guys that he chose, and 
um, just how much hard work went into it. And, and then, of course, if I had if I had two choices, um, you know, if God said to me, "Hey, where's two places in the world you'd like to play in the World Cup?" Um, Italy and the United States would, would be on the top of my list every time. And I sort of had to warm up in Italy um, and the learning experience, and then I had this opportunity to to captain the team in, in my home country, which not many people have ever done before. Um, and I, I look back at that group of guys, and, and that, for me, um, for lack of any other better term, there, that was the springboard um, for the game in my estimation. I can't tell you still how many people come up to me and say, you know, 1994 was the first time I got introduced to the game. Uh, it was your group of players. You know, thanks so much for for giving me you know, sort of the passion for the game. And, you know, it was a special group of guys. It was uh, a group that was determined, a group that really cared about playing for the national team. I mean, you, you know, you saw it every day. And, and I know, you know, people that are, are listening, probably uh, there's some that grew up with that group and feel the same way. They, they cared about what happened to the national team. They cared about uh, being successful in the World Cup. They cared about growing the sport. And, you know, now, now things are a little different. And I think... Not not in a negative way. I think they're different because of the work that that group did. All right, Tony. One of the things that uh, you said uh, when I talked to you when we scheduled this is, you know, hey, can I talk to you about anything? And you said, yeah, no problem. That's what I love about you. You're an open book. Uh-oh. Yeah, you're ready to talk about anything. And, uh, you know, here's the thing, right? You have all this fame. You're in your prime as a goalkeeper. And you made an interesting decision. You decided, hey, I'm going to try football, acting. I mean, I don't know what else you tried. Talk about why you did that. Were there any regrets after the fact for doing that, Tony? Break that down for us. Yeah, so if you know the timing, 1994, I, I had opportunities to go to Europe, and the, there was always the, the issue of work permit for me. Um, and I wanted to go to Italy, and I was fighting to, to get my Italian passport. As it turns out, long story short, I missed it by four months with my mom receiving her passport four months before I was born, which, changed, which the rules were different back then. They're, they're a little bit different now. Um, it, it, had that been now, I would have had an easier time. So I was kind of waiting it out. The World Cup was done um, July 4th for us. And the league was, that's 1994, the league was supposed to start in March. And MLS was supposed to start in March, uh, preseason of 1995. So as we're going through this thing, I had said my entire, um, my entire life I always wanted to kick in the NFL. I said that when I was in college. I actually went out and kicked uh, at the University of Virginia for the kicking coach while I was there. And Roger Flybill, who was covering the games, had heard that. And I got a phone call one day and said, hey, you know, the, the Jets, uh, Nick Lowry just went to the Jets and they're looking for a kickoff guy. Why don't you go and just kick for him? And I said, okay, no problem. I went out there. With, it was probably, I'm going to guess the World Cup was over for about two or three weeks. And I get to the field out in Hempstead, and Dean, when I tell you, there were they were lined up. Cameras were lined up um, across the sideline, and the PR guy comes up to me and my agent at the time, and um, he says, "Holy cow, we've never had this much media here. <laughs> but international media, everybody." And and I thought, man. So anyway, I had a white T-shirt on and black shorts, and never forgetting a pair of copas. <laughs> and that's what I went on the field. So the first kick. I, uh, they wanted me to kick off. Uh, they just, it was a year they moved back from the, um, I don't remember, from the 40 to the 35 or from the 40, 
35 to the 30. I can't remember. They moved it back five yards that year. And the first kick I hit, and I boom one. And I hadn't kicked a football beam in, since college when I was out on the AstroTurf field. And before you knew it, I was in an office, and my my agent said, well, the, the Jets would like to sign you, and here's a signing bonus. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, of course, I call my wife to tell her what's going on. I'm in the office, and this is, this is happening, like, uh, at light speed. And I said to myself, well, I'm not going to Europe, um, uh, and the league is going to start here in a couple months. You know, I'll just do this. I'll live my dream out, and and I'll continue to, to train. And I trained. I trained uh, out in Hempstead. Um, I had a buddy out there, and I would train every day after training, after football practice. Um, I'd go out and still catch balls every day and do a couple drills, and I'd be done. Um, about a month into this thing, uh, they announced that uh, the the league is not going to start in 1995 going to start in 1996 and now I'm like holy cow what do I do here um, and I was lucky enough that Alfonso Mondello had the Long Island Rough Riders uh, in the which I believe was called USISL at the time I could be wrong but I, I think it was and he said why don't you come and play here and they made an offer to me that um, I had an opportunity to play kind of close to home um, until the league started, and then of course Major League Soccer started in uh, 1996. So that's that's really how fast it happened. Um, do I regret it? No, I don't regret it because I'm one of those uh, guys that um, uh, I, I don't want to go ever, you know, when I'm 75 years old and go, ah, I should have done that when I had an opportunity. Um, things were different then. It's not like the game isn't like it was now. If I played in this day and age, I probably would not have made that decision. Uh, but, no, I don't regret it at all. Um, there were some people at U.S. Soccer that were really unhappy with me. Um, I had one guy tell me after I got called back into the national team um, in uh, Steve Sampson's year 1997, I believe it was, no, no, it was 1998. So I played a couple of years in the league and had a pretty good run in the league. 1998, I got called back into the national team, and I had a very high-ranking uh, official at, at um, um, U.S. Soccer lean into my locker just prior to the game. And I wasn't playing that game. We were in Orlando. I believe it was Sweden was the opponent. I'd have to go back and check. Um, and he leaned into my locker and he said, "I swore you would never put you would never put on a U.S. jersey again." And I said to myself at that time, "Damn it, I'm going to get back to the World Cup um, because of that conversation." <laughs> you know, that's kind of how I was back then. And <laughs> unfortunately, I didn't make I didn't make that team in 1998, but I was still determined down the road. Just to close the book on that, what happened with the Jets? How long you were with them? And then, as a follow up, Tony, you've heard the, you know, back then they said because you did the Jets thing, that's why you weren't on that '98 World Cup team. Uh, address both those. When when did the Jets thing end, and and how do you answer that question? Yeah, the, the the Jets thing ended after like two months when they decided to sign a player from Dallas called Tony Casillas. Um, they cut the entire, they cut like five guys to fit his salary in. And then he went AWOL and never showed up that season. <laughs> so, um, but uh, it, it was it was fine with me. I, I realized that I could do it. If I stuck with it, I, I think I would have been able to do it. Um, it just, uh, it was such a boring job, if I'm being completely honest. 
um, just sitting in the weight room all day, waiting for that, you know, after your special teams meeting in the morning, waiting for that uh, 2.30 uh, whistle to go in the afternoon for you to go out and kick five balls. And I only kicked two because kick, and Nick uh, kicked three of them, I kicked two of them, and that was it uh, for the most part, other than special teams day, which was really short. So I was lucky, though. I had Pete Carroll as my head coach. He made it fun. I would go out and run with the receivers a little bit. I was on the special hands team, which was always fun. It was scary. Um, we did a we did a shootout in preseason for charity, and all these players were donating thousands of dollars to try and shoot on me. Pete Carroll made it fun, um, but it, I couldn't wait to get back. It, it wasn't the plan to stay there the whole time because I was waiting for the league, and then it ended. Um, so it, it ended for me in, in, in 1994. Um, I, I, in my estimation, I should have been on the 1998 team. But looking back on it, um, I'm trying to, when I look back on my career of, of fortunate times of, of being out of something, that was probably the time to be out of that group. I'll just ask for one comment. You know, you've heard the podcast the Men in Blazers did documenting that. It's, you know, fairly detailed. Any general comment on that podcast and that breakdown, or do you want to stay away from that one? No, I don't. I don't remember what they said. Um, and, and if they said for a minute, I wasn't on. I don't know if they addressed me, but I don't think. No, it wasn't about anything. you. It was about all the yeah. theatrics around. Yeah, uh, yeah the look, team. it was. It was unfortunate um, that it got to that. That's not what. Uh, that's not what the World Cup should be, right? And results are one thing, but it, it was a little bit. Um, was a little bit of a mess uh, and unfortunate for all of us, but we we lose in that if we don't learn from it. We yeah. lose if if we didn't learn anything from that World Cup. Um, you know, the team didn't qualify. That didn't qualify and get out of the 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 next round. I think the the positive from all of that is that. Well, then there was an expectation that we got out of the first round, and when was the last time we were expected? to get out of the first round. Um, now it's, the expectation is we have to get to the World Cup, and the expectation is we have to get out of the first round. And I think that's all good pressure. I think it shows growth. Obviously, we're at a different stage today as we speak, having not qualified for the World Cup. But that's past us now, and, and again, a, a, another learning experience. And if we don't learn from it, then we didn't do a good job. All right. You talk about uh, getting out of the group. Maybe, in fact, you needed to get out of New York because you're traded to Kansas City, and here comes Tony Miola, the Tony Miola that we knew and loved, and between the pipes in 2000, Tony, you were lights out. I mean, it's like a pitcher winning the MVP. Goalkeepers don't win MVPs, you know that. League MVP, Goalkeeper of the Year, MLS Cup MVP, and Kansas City, this man from Kearney, New Jersey, who's a New York City guy, goes to Kansas, and that becomes like your home, and you shine. When I got there in 1999, I got traded. Uh, I ended up getting hurt, and I missed pretty much the entire um, – I, I think I played like four games or something, five games at the end of the 99 season. We were terrible. We were in last place. Um, I'd gotten traded there. I didn't want to be there. I, had, I actually had a clause in my contract. Um, prior to getting traded there, that there were three cities I didn't want to go to. I, I agreed to this with the league when I signed my contract in New York. 
And if I did, I had to get paid extra money. <laughs> and Kansas City was one of them. I had no idea how beautiful it was. I had no idea. All I know is when I got traded there, I didn't know much about it. And I got hurt when I was there, and I hated it more than anything. And then when I got hurt, I was uh, 30 years old, and everybody said, you know, that's it. We'll never see him again. Um, and I was reading all of this stuff, and people were telling me about it. I had a, my, my best friend Sal Rosamilia is like, "Dude, you have to, you have to show these people, man. You're you're not done." And he started training me, and he's like, "I can't believe these fools think you're done, you know." And, and he's kind of pumping me up through this whole thing. As I'm getting ready, um, uh, I, I worked with Rudy Rudowski down in uh, Delaware, who was our trainer. I went down to him and Jim Hashimoto's clinic. I uh, worked hard four and a half months after I, I did my ACL back on the field playing. And I was determined that the following year we were going to be better. But I told Bob Gensler at the beginning of the year that I didn't want to be in Kansas City. I was just determined to play. So he called me in the offseason, um, uh, and I can remember exactly where I was in my old house when the phone rang. and. He said to me, uh, he, you know, and, and only Bob Gensler the way that he can. He said, Anthony, he used to call me Anthony all the time. He said, Anthony, this is Coach Gensler. He said, uh, one question. And I said, what's that, Coach? And I had the most utmost respect for Bob Gensler. Always have, always will. Um, and he said, will you give me one year? And I said, what does that mean, Coach? He said, I'm going to give you a new contract. And you give me one year, and at the end of this year, um, I will do everything in my power. I'll have it worked out. You'll get traded back east. And I said, okay, perfect. That's the deal. Let's roll. So I got an apartment in Kansas City, and to his word, and I've told this story before, and and Bob Ganser, I think, told it. I don't remember if it was to a group or he sold it at my induction in the Hall of Fame. I can't remember off the top of my head. But as soon as we won the championship, we did our whole post-game thing. And, and, and Lamar Hunt at the time uh, put put a, uh, a hall together so all our families could be there. And he got food and we were all together. And after they did all the announcements and the celebrations and all that stuff, he pulled me over and with Lamar Hunt. And he said to me, Okay, um, you lived up to your end of the deal, and I'd like to live up to my end of the deal. And he said, uh, we will start tomorrow, and we'll try and get you back to New York, and we think we've got this thing worked out. Um, just give us a couple days. Is that okay? And I looked at him and I said, I don't want to get traded. Um, I want to stay here. Wow. And I fell in love with the place. Um, you know, and I stayed there, I guess, another five years or so. What a great story. That's outstanding. Well, along the way, that also meant that you were back in the picture, you know, with the U.S. national team. But there's two names that were always involved. And even when you were the number one man in 90 and 94, you heard these two names. When I say these names now, reflect on what those names meant to you in 90 and 94, and then reflect on what those names mean to you today. And you know the names, Casey Keller, Brad Friedel. What they meant then that was the competition. Those were the guys that I needed to be better than in order to stay on the field. And in our position, as you know, um, you know, one guy plays and, and the rest watch. And that's, they were, they were my driving force. They were, um, they were two guys that fueled me and I hoped in some way. And, and 
I actually, I know that I, I fooled them along the way. Um, we always, I had a good relationship with both of them um, while we were playing, and we always worked well together, and I think we pushed each other every day. Uh, but we also knew that this was uh, this was our job, and this is what we were meant to do. And you know, I'm, I, I think in the end, uh, I was able to edge them out in that team, uh, really in two World Cups, and, and so Brad wasn't involved in the first in 1990. Casey was uh, with David Van Oli, um, uh, um, but yeah, in the second World Cup, uh, you know, it was it was Brad that I was battling every single day, as you know. Um, as you saw every day, um, and, and I think we, we pushed each other to get better. Uh, what they mean to me now, two, two very good friends um, of mine. Um, I respect what both of those guys are doing, what they have done. I've worked with Brad with the youth national teams before he went to New England. Uh, Casey and I at the moment working in the same industry. As a matter of fact, I just had a great conversation with him um, in Atlanta, we, when we see each other, I, I enjoy my time, and I have nothing but um, great things to say about those guys. Um, and they were they were a big part of of me um, growing as a player and learning about professionalism. And I respect everything they did in their career. Another guy you respect is Bruce Arena, who made sure that you got number one zero zero. Why was that so important to you, Tony Miola? Dean, I never thought about it. Uh, I got the call from from Bruce, and actually at the time I was still in the running to make that team. Um, and he said to me, "You know, you're in competition." It ended up being Tim, Timmy. Um, that made that team, but he, you know, I, I was close. I, I was the fourth guy there, and he said, I need to see you one more time. And then the whole 100 cap thing kind of happened after. Um, you know, I was having a pretty good year that year in 2002. And, um, you know, I hadn't been around the group. I was injured, and then I had, I had, uh, uh, I was called into camp, and then I, I declined going into camp. I went to have uh, sports hernia surgery. Um, because I wanted to try and make it back to the World Cup team and uh, um, in 2002. And then in 2006, Bruce said, you know, you still have an opportunity to play here. And um, I just didn't make the team. But I had that one last time. It just happened to be the 100th cap. And, and uh, down in your area there, down in Raleigh, um, at the place you call games at all the time. So every time I go down there, it's, uh, it's a pretty special memory for me, but it it really it really wasn't about just getting a hundred caps. It was about seeing if I was still um, good enough to be part of that group. What do you remember, Tony, about the day that you woke up and said, "You know what? I can't play professional soccer anymore." Well, I don't remember that day. Did it come yet? <laughs> Oh, man, I'll tell you what, I'll still watch you play. I'm yeah. telling you right now, like, I would definitely watch you play. I, well, you know, as, as most people know, I, I walked away from the game after um, it was over. I, I wasn't happy with sort of the way it ended, and I I did have one more chance uh, when Krecky called me to, to consider going to Chivas, and I just moved back to the East Coast and didn't want to move all the way back because – you know, when you're playing and you're going around the country, you never kind of know if you're going to ever have a chance to get back to um, your your home. You know, I was lucky enough um, 
to, to, to finally find a way back to New Jersey, and I didn't want to risk my family moving back out uh, west. And now I kick myself a little bit, thinking, why did I give it another shot? But there were so many other things going on. But I walked away because I didn't like the way that it uh, that it ended. And, um, you know, Bruce and I, we, we had it out. Um, I, I loved the guy. Uh, we've had our discussion about it and, and how I thought it was unfair the way it happened, and we've moved on. Um, and, and now I'm back in the game, um, enjoying, uh, you know, still being around the game, being around people who love the game, being around people who have a passion to help it grow. We need all of those people. Uh, we need all of these coaches that are going every day to, 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 to continue their education, to try and get better, the, the ones who study the game every day. We need all of that. Without everyone making a, a huge effort uh, and continuing to do that, we're never going to get to where we want to be. Um, having said that, I think we're capable enough. I believe in, in the American coaches. I always have. Um, I think we do a good job. I get to travel around the world and see how people do it around the world, and we're no different than they are, right? We, we may have a different culture. Uh, there may be different setups. There may be bigger clubs. But as far as coaching, um, our guys do a pretty damn good job, and, and I hope we just continue to grow and keep doing what we're doing. Okay, so then uh, the coaching bug goes. I want to talk about Russia World Cup because – it's interesting when you see all the success uh, on TV of guys that you played with, you know, Lexi Lalas, you got the different style of Eric Winalda, Kobe Jones, there's so many players that are on air. But I said all along, and you know I did, Tony, that uh, you'd be a rock star in the booth. I know that you really want to coach, but before we get to that and talk about uh, the stint at Jacksonville, which we need to address, and and uh, your ambition to return, which is another big reason I wanted to have you on here, you are awesome in the booth. I thought, and, and you know, th this business is so tough, right? I can think you're awesome and someone else can say something different, right? But I, yeah. I, I think you're incredible. And they have. Yeah, you got a great <laughs> voice, though. You got a good look. You say the game. I, I enjoy listening to you all the way home. Uh, thank you. Yeah, talk about that experience in Russia, just being in the booth in general. Well, first, I, I was lucky because I was in the booth with a legend. Um, so if, if, if anything ever went wrong, um, you know, I knew that I had the security of J.P. Della Camera next to me and he would make it right um, because it, it is really like nothing I've ever experienced. I said to him after probably after four games, we were walking out of one of the one of the games and I said, turn around with J.P. Man, it was so much easier playing. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it, it was a, it was a grind, especially that last six days of the first round where we had five games in six days in five different cities. Um, that was that was uh, I guess announcers hell, and we made it through it, man. And then it was uh, it, we, we were rolling, and I felt really good about the work that we did. Um, I felt really good about what Fox did. I felt really good about um, how we presented uh, our team and, and how we um, presented the game. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I say all the time, I, I really don't know what the hell I'm doing in that business. Like, I don't know the ins and the outs. I don't know. I never took a class. I don't know um, anything. I just, when they asked me a couple years ago, so I've been I've been working at Fox a little bit over four years, I believe, three, three or four years. 
you know, I started doing youth games, and one of the producers asked me, you know, how do you, you know, what kind of announcer are you? And I'm like, I don't really know. What, what does that mean? What kind of announcer are you? I, I, he said, well, how do you look at the game? And I said, I look at it as a coach. I try and call it as if you're the coach and what the coach sees on the field and then how you would anticipate the changes. Um, that part of it, I think I got I got uh, right a lot of the time. And, and sometimes, as you know, you take a chance with saying, okay, I think uh, I, I think uh, Didier Deschamps is going to make a substitute. He's going to change, uh, I don't know, left back. And then he goes and changes center forward. You know, <laughs> you take a chance because that's what you do. And sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong. Um, but I feel good about how we presented that part of it. And and um, I'm still, it's, it's, a, it's a work in progress with me um, as far as the announcement part of it goes. But I, I appreciate the kind of words. I had fun. It was a grind. Um, I'm, I'm thrilled to have done it. And who knows what the future holds. Well, you're staying in the media world because you've got, uh, you know, the show on uh, XM and uh, that people can follow as well. But uh, I loved when I called you to say, you know, hey, great job. And where are you on next? And you're like, you know what? I love it, but I'm a coach. I want to coach, and I don't necessarily want to just coach goalkeepers. I want to coach. Tony, you got a chance at Jacksonville with the NASL. What went right? What went wrong? And why? And how do you get that next opportunity? Because I can say, and of course, you know, I, I apologize. I don't have much power, but you get a vote from me, and you know you're going to be back out there again. Talk about Jacksonville and why the coaching bug is so big for you right now. Well, first off, the, the, the coaching bug's been there forever, and, and I've, I've had the luxury of being able to work with these great people that I work with and also work um, at the U.S. Youth National Team setup. And I've been an assistant coach uh, for five and a half years, so that's kind of fulfilled the bug um, in the interim here where I'm, I'm kind of doing wearing a couple hats. And I love that age group. I love the U18s that I've been working with and, and um, you know then I get this opportunity in Jacksonville and um, I was thrilled about it um, and, and I thought for the most part we uh, you know results mean everything as a professional team and we didn't get the results so I, I understand that part of it I think my time was cut too short uh, we had a two-year plan that is what I sold uh, the ownership group on at the time, but there were other things happening in the group, and there were some changes going on. As we came to find out later on that the, the owner was selling the group and all that stuff. Um, I, I just uh, I, I wish I would have had a little bit longer, but look, I guess every coach in the world says the same thing, right? They wish they would have had a little bit longer. They could change it around. Um, I think we did good things at the club. We brought the, uh, the youth team in. We put an NPSL team in. All things that they couldn't get done before I was there, we got done. And um, I'm proud of those things. Uh, but now is, is time for me to um, – I've been able to uh, – so I've, I've been offered a few – uh, different positions uh, over the last two years, and none of them really made sense to me. And what I did learn um, that, that if you get into a, a position where you have a chance, you, it has to be the right position. It has to be with the right group of people. You have to know everything about everybody that's around you. Sometimes you don't have that luxury um, when you're going for your first job, right? Sometimes you look at it, and I, I loved my time there. Um, I don't regret anything. Um, other than not winning uh, enough games, 
but that that part of it, I, I think, will come. And I've learned so much since that time that that one day I'll have an opportunity, and I'm going to take the right position. What about the notion of if you get back into it, you might need to coach goalkeepers? Is that a no-no, or where no, are you? No, yeah, on that? that's that's. I won't get no. I'm I'm past that. I've been coaching on the sideline for since I was 20 years old. I'm 47. I'm no, I'm 49 now. Holy cow! Um, uh, sorry about that. My math was a little bit off. So 29 years I've been on the sideline coaching as a, as a coach. I have no interest in coaching just goalkeepers. Um, I told Bruce Arena at one time that if he needed to help. <clears throat> for one camp he was considering that I would go in and do it. Um, I, I've told Tab Ramos, and I've done this for Tab Ramos, a couple times he got stitched up with, with guys that um, uh, had, to, had to back out of camps late, um, and I did that for him. That's how I got into the youth national team. And then quickly after that, I was only in for one camp as a goalkeeper coach. And then uh, Hugo Perez, my old teammate, who you know very well, gave me the opportunity. He said, yeah, you're too valuable to just do goalkeepers. I'd like you to do this with me. And I became an assistant coach right after. And that's I, I really don't have – and you know what, Dean? And, and part of the reason what people don't realize, and I don't think anyone thinks about, a, a goalkeeper coaching position is completely different than coaching on the sideline. The, the position is, is, for the most part, it's for young guys. You're kicking balls all day. The energy is completely different. The physicality of it is completely different. I don't know that if I got into goal, I, I can do it right now. I don't know what my body's going to feel like in five years. So I don't know that I can do it five years from now. And that that's worrisome to me because the way I want to do it, um, uh, you know, sometimes the body says no at some point. You know, and and it's a completely different. Um, uh, uh, coaching uh, uh, workload, I, I guess, for lack of a better term. And you know, I want to be coaching. Uh, I want to be in the game, you know, for a long time. And I don't know if I would make it as a goalkeeper coach. I could go out today and I can train your goalkeepers. I'm convinced of that. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking more long term. And, and plus, I have a I, I have a pretty good feel for what I want to do and how I want to do it and, and the only way to do that is to be a head coach. Knowing that you know what you want to do, MLS continues to thrive, USL is booming, they're adding teams all over the country, it's becoming a great support system even to MLS with those teams being elevated to MLS for Cincinnati, a great example of being elevated even early because of the incredible success they've had with their fans what is your ideal situation or perfect formula, magic sauce now and 10 years from now? What would be the dream job for you as a coach? Well, the perfect formula is working with um, a group of people that are all working together. Uh, that's what I learned um, down in Jacksonville. You have to be working together 24 hours a day. Um, and the minute that somebody strays from, from that philosophy, you know, it starts to break down, and, and sometimes those are hard to come by. Those are, are difficult ways to come by, and you. But that's the ideal. Where it is, I have no idea. Look, coaches, coaches fully understand that. You know, today you're in New Jersey, tomorrow you're someplace else. Um, and and the fact that um, somebody didn't do well at one place 
for me doesn't ever mean, and I, I say this on the radio, I've been saying it for years on the radio, way before I was chosen, doesn't mean that it doesn't work someplace else. <laughs> you know, um, you, you just have to be in the right situation because the, the philosophies, um, you know, look at Gareth Southgate, for example, for England. You know, they said at the club level didn't work. How can he be a national team coach? And he sets his team up in a way where everybody believes in what they're doing. And boom, they, they get to the semifinals of the World Cup with a team that no one really knew what to expect. And so what you do in one place doesn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily reflect what might happen in another place. And so there's no one, I can't say there's one scenario that, um, that, that is ideal. If, I'm, if I get into coaching, I think 10 years from now is to be part of the, the national team staff uh, at some level. You know that that's kind of uh, kind of a uh, you know a baby in, in in waiting. You know, in a lot of ways, because everyone wants to help make the national team better. We're at a time right now; that it's sort of at the tip of our tongue. And um, you know, who knows? Who knows who the coach is going to be? But to be part of the national team setup at some point in your career uh, would be a huge thrill, I think. If you were king for a day and you did have the power, who should be? the coach of the U.S. men's national team right now at such a critical juncture, having not made the World Cup in this last sequence? Well, I've been having a lot of uh, conversations with, uh, you know, officials at, uh, at U.S. soccer over the last couple months. And I, I'm, I'm just, this is a personal preference. I've said this on the radio. I'm just, at this moment, I'm pro-American. Um, and that doesn't mean that there's not a foreign coach out there that can get the job done. Um, I, I just want somebody that, that feels it, um, understands what we just went through, understands the pain that we just went through, and if that ever happened again, would feel that same pain. Someone that's been involved, um, we got a lot of great candidates. For the first time, if you think about the hiring when Bob was hired and when Bruce was hired, Bob Gansler, all great national team coaches in their own right um, and did a lot of good stuff for us, but there weren't a ton of candidates at the time. We have finally four or five American candidates uh, that can go in and do a good job with our national team. I hope they, they get the chance. If this were the team two years ago, uh, with the makeup of that team, it's one thing. But we have a very young team. We've got a lot of coaches that have worked with these guys before, understand these players. So, again, just personal preference. There's probably someone out there chewing on tax going, no, I don't want an American coach, you know. Um, that's just, just how I feel. Um, if we get a foreign coach and it's the right guy, uh, what would I be like? I'd be, again, the biggest fan of the national team, just like I'm going to be either way. Uh, in no particular order, those four or five American names that come to the top of your mind, who are they, Tony Miola? Well, the first the first one that comes to mind for me is Tab Ramos. He's been in the program for 10 years. He's coached every one of these teams, taken two teams to quarterfinals of the last two U20 World Cups. We've never done that before. Every time I talk to these young players and ask them, um, you know, who's some of the, the best coaches, his name comes up all the time. They love playing for him. But you've got Jesse Marsh, who's probably out of the picture now because he's gone over to Germany. You've got Greg Berhalter, who's doing great things. My old teammate, Peter Vermees, uh, who's also doing great things. And it's been 
probably the most, I don't know what the records look like, but he's been one of the most consistent coaches in Major League Soccer over the last who knows how many years now, right? So you you have a bunch of names now, finally, uh, that could be in that mix. And I know Caleb Porter has sort of thrown his name into the mix. All these guys that have had success, the next logical step for them is to one day become a national team coach. And that's the way the rest of the world works for the most part. And hopefully we will we will get to that point as well. I just I think any of those guys are all a little bit different. They have all little different um, you know way of doing things. Their systems are a little bit different. Their intensity on the sidelines are all a little bit different. But they all kind of fit a lot of boxes that we need at U.S. Soccer, in my opinion. And um, you know, if you ask me this question five years from now. Um, who knows what the answer will be, but this group of guys, Dean, I'm, I'm convinced I've been really bullish on this young group of guys. I've been around them now for five and a half years. They're a really talented group of young players. I think by 2026, this will be a very good team. Team on the air talking about college soccer. We're going to end it talking about college soccer as our next visit will be with one of the top D3 college coaches as well. Men's Division One starts this weekend. And a lot of people say, ah, I don't know about college soccer. I love it. I've uh, been involved with it for 19 years. I think it's fantastic. It's got a great spot. You're still seeing players go from college soccer to MLS. Tony Miola's take on college soccer. Final question. Probably some changes that need to be made, and I know they're trying to get it to be uh, a fall spring. Um, but college soccer is here to stay. There's great coaches in college soccer. Um, they know what they're doing. They, we, we, we always talk about the national team. No one ever talks about this 99.9% of the kids that never make it to the national team and need the college education. And they continue to go to school for free and, and get a college. Can you imagine going to Virginia or going to Stanford or Indiana or Carolina, your kids going there on a college soccer scholarship? And that, that is likely the last time he's ever going to play soccer. Why would we want to get rid of that? Like, what are we thinking? Um, do, do they need to make some changes? Maybe, yeah, they can make some changes. But, but tell me one organization that they look at the NBA and what they're doing, and look at what Major League Baseball has done over the years to make changes. All of it needs. There's probably tweaks that you can you can argue about making better. But man, we shouldn't change college soccer. Too many good people involved that do too many good things and. And too many good men and women um, come out of college soccer that go into our community, uh, and soccer was that vehicle. I, I would, I would hate to, uh, I would hate to think my daughter's playing college soccer now. I would hate to think that that thrill would would not be there for some kids. I'm glad you mentioned your daughter. I do want to tell everybody that uh, our prayers are with uh, Tony's father, who is going through some stuff right now. Real quickly, just, uh, thanks. Yeah, thanks. give us an update on that and, and tell us uh, a quick update, the names of your family and how they're doing. Yes, yeah, my, my dad's just, just going through uh, what some people go through uh, when they get older. He's uh, you know been battle. He was cancer-free since 2000. Um, and it's come back here. It hasn't been it hasn't been as aggressive as maybe we thought it was. But he's doing well. I appreciate you asking. Uh, my son is going into his last year playing at baseball at Stetson. Hopefully, they can get to another uh, super regional this year. My daughter's a freshman at Palm Beach Atlantic, um, playing soccer there in the women's team. And my uh, my youngest, uh, he's me, <laughs> and he's do he's. Uh, 
he he loves playing sports. He loves doing everything. He's a sophomore in high school, and um, he's a, a spitting image of me, just a heck of a lot better looking than I was, and um, is uh, carving his way, actually, in, uh, in baseball a little bit. But we'll see what happens with him. And your beautiful wife, Colleen, she's not pining for the mullet at all? She's not asking for the return of the mullet, Yeah, Tony? She, she hasn't quite asked for me to um, relive uh, the, the early 90s. I, I don't know why, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I think she's wrong in her, her, her way of thinking, but, um, you know, she's probably, probably smart for it, that's for sure. Listen, not only am I smiling right now, my mom and dad back in Little Gibsonburg, Ohio, are smiling, too. I told you that uh, you're my favorite. You're all also their favorite. They oh, love you, Tony. Man. They're going to be super Give excited. Hug, man. Yeah, absolutely. Tony Miola. Oh, Thanks, man. Brother. I had a blast. Thank you so much for being with us, and uh, we'll be tracking you, okay, my man? Thanks, brother. Be well. Tony Miola, I hope you enjoyed that. Men's Division One college soccer kicks off this weekend. Rob Keel, the director of college programs, tells you about the games to watch. And then we take a look at D3 soccer, specifically D3 women's soccer and the role of their advocacy chair for D3 women's soccer with United Soccer Coaches. Looking for ways to improve your training sessions? Quick Goal has supplied the highest quality soccer goals, seating, field, and training equipment for over 30 years. From backyards to the world's greatest pitches, Quick Goal has products essential for every level of the game. As an official partner to the United Soccer Coaches and technical partner to U.S. Soccer, Quick Goal knows what equipment you need to take your game to the next level. Visit quickgoal.com to satisfy all your equipment needs. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap. Dean Linky here. Really appreciated Tony Miola talking about the good times and the bad times. He's been through it all. Man wants to coach again. I hope he gets that opportunity. All right. Last week, Rob Kehoe, the director of college programs for United Soccer Coaches, did such a fantastic job getting us up to date on the new rule changes with recruiting and transfers. And as he always does, setting the table for the start of Division I women's soccer. Indeed, it was a fantastic weekend. Division One men's soccer starts this weekend as well. So you got to have Rob back because you need to know where he's going to be flying right in that Learjet, but also get you up to speed. And Rob, thanks for joining us again. The journey begins this weekend. Pretty exciting for men's Division One soccer. Absolutely, Dean. And as you say, the journey begins. Uh, when we think about journey beginning, we're also thinking about destination. And for both the College Cups, for the Division One women, which will be back in carry at Wake Med soccer facility there and then for the men a return to UC Santa Barbara uh, where the last college cup there was in 2010 with Akron winning the championship and so all eyes are going to be on the prizes to get to those locations and the women have started and now the men getting ready to start this weekend a very exciting journey ahead. Yeah we got some new leaders for programs as well and some legends that have stepped away. New on the sidelines at Notre Dame will be Chad Riley replacing Bobby Clark the legend Bobby Clark, who 
stepped away in retirement after doing such a fantastic job at Dartmouth and at Stanford and then at Notre Dame. And then at Penn State, Bob Warming kind of retired there for a little bit, but then uh, reemerged at UN Omaha, Nebraska Omaha, was lured back to the sidelines there. And then John Bloom uh, retired at Ohio State, replaced by Brian Mazinoff. And Jeff, Jeff Cook takes over, formerly the Dartmouth coach, and he's been with the Philadelphia Union for the last number of years working in their academy. He's taken the sidelines at Penn State. And then Brian Mazinoff, as I mentioned, at Ohio State, who's been the longtime assistant at Indiana with Todd Yegley. So those will be uh, some new sites in the uh, stadiums this year, and I'm sure those young men are going to have wonderful opportunities to move those programs forward. All right, buckle up, put the seatbelt on, because Rob Keogh's getting in his Learjet this weekend, men's Division One. If you can only pick a handful, where will Rob Keogh be? Friday night's going to be really busy. I'm going to South Carolina to see South Carolina, Georgetown, because always opening night at the graveyard in Columbia is fantastic. Indiana is going for a very, very exciting weekend. They go and play Wake Forest on the opening night. Akron hosts Butler. Clemson goes to Creighton in Omaha, and Creighton is one of the wonderful places to watch college soccer, and they'll open up again with Clemson. Maryland goes to Washington in Seattle, and then you see Santa Barbara opens with St. John's at Harder Stadium, and that's the kickoff for the season to get started in the journey for the College Cup. Sunday, uh, IU stays in the triangle, and they play UNC. I have that call. Uh, and that, again, is going to be a fantastic weekend in your home area. But I have to jump forward a little bit. In the next couple of weeks, we've got some really exciting games as well. Stanford defending champion is going to Maryland to play. And I can only imagine what that's going to be at Ludwig Field on August 31st. And then the IU Classic is that weekend also where Notre Dame and IU are going to be both playing against Dartmouth and UConn. So that's a pretty exciting couple weeks. And then also on the 31st is probably one of the highlight games of the year in terms of fan enjoyment is Clemson, South Carolina again. And they always play each other early in the season. That should be incredibly exciting. Rob, not going to let you go without uh, giving us a solid segue. You know, one of the things about this podcast that I know you love is that we also talk about Division Two, Division Three, junior college, even NAIA. Marcus Wood, who's done such an amazing job as the head coach at Harden Simmons for their women's team. He's going to join me next, but he's also integrated with the United Soccer Coaches. Tell us how. Well, Marcus Wood, in addition to having his team get to the Final Four for Division Three women last year, is also uh, chair of the NCAA Division Three Women's Soccer Committee, and he's also the national representative for Division Three in the Advocacy Council for United Soccer Coaches. So Marcus is all about college soccer in Division Three, and he's just been absolutely fantastic to work with in terms of his representation of the Division Three game, and not only on the women's side, but the interaction that we have with John Bourne, who's North Park University head coach, whose team also got to the D3 National Championship last year, and John is our national representative for United Soccer Coach and the Advocacy Council, and both these guys are just 
just terrific in terms of their communication with Division Three and on behalf of Division Three, but also they coach their teams right to the national championship level. So I'm sure your interaction with Marcus is going to be terrific. See how he does that? The perfect segue. That's why Rob Keel will go down as one of the all-time great sideline reporters as well for that college game of the week. <laughs> Big time. Well done, Rob. Marcus Wood, Around the Corner, the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by Team Staff. Rolling on. United Soccer Coaches provides programs and services that enhance, encourage, and contribute to the development and recognition of soccer coaches, their players, and the game we love. Join today. Visit unitedsoccercoaches.org slash join. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Team Snap. Having a great time today. Love the time we spent with Tony Miola. He was not afraid of any of the tough questions. What a career he has had and what a career now in the booth. He wants to get back to coaching. He was honest about it. Really enjoyed it. Of course, during this part of the year, we're talking college soccer almost all the time. So Rob Keel got us caught up on the big games for Division I men's soccer. And unabashed, we always talk about the fact that we care about D2, D3, Junior College, NAIA. Not only do we care, we look forward to it. We follow it. We want to know about it. We want to meet the key players. And boy, did Rob Kehoe do a great job setting up our next guest, Marcus Wood. He has been a regional chair for NCAA Division Three women's soccer for three years. And as Rob Kehoe also said, for Division Three women, he is a big man for the Advocacy Council for the United Soccer Coaches. Well, and speaking of the big man, I mean, how about Harden Simmons? They made it to the Final Four last year. His numbers are off the chart. He's in his 18th season, if this is updated. He might tell me 19. I'm not sure, as we're looking at his fine website here for the Cowgirls. He joins me now. How many years have you been at Harden Simmons there, Marcus Wood? Starting year 19, D. Excited to get going on year 19. Wow, that's incredible. Located in Abilene, Texas. Uh, you've been to a couple Final Fours now, Division Three women's soccer. Talk about you know getting involved, stepping in. You've been doing it. Clearly, you love what you do, and you love Division Three soccer. Oh, absolutely. Division Three soccer, there are so many great teams and great players and great coaches in Division Three. Um, it, it's just been a, a wonderful place to to apply the trade that we all, we all love the game of soccer and the to, to be able to coach these, these special players is quite an honor. All right, well, tell us a little bit uh, while we've got you about Hardin-Simmons University, Abilene, Texas. What makes that place so special to go to school and play soccer? The, the, in particular, to women's soccer, 60% of our roster is studying physical therapy. They're going to, to get a doctorate in physical therapy. So that, that's been the special attraction for us that has allowed us to get the elite soccer player here. Uh, we're a small Baptist university, uh, 2,200 undergraduate students. Uh, but there's a very strong fit for kind of a, the niche of the Division Three soccer player, the, the top-end student athlete. Uh, you know, a, a lot of our roster, we, we chase the high ACT score. And when we're sitting on a field watching a showcase tournament, we're looking for a great player that can clearly help us in soccer. But when you get that great player that also has the right ACT score, and then you put on, on top of it the fact that they want to go to physical therapy school, usually we're right in our wheelhouse recruiting and can steal recruits pretty regularly away from Division II scholarships and in some cases Division I scholarships. That's how we've able to steal a perennial is just being true to, to kind of what fits a Hardin-Simmons student. 
Well, you clearly win in a lot of games, and as you said, you're helping groom these young ladies for their next step. For a lot of people, that'd be enough, but clearly in these leadership roles, you are fully entrenched. You wanted to do more. Talk about first why you accepted this role for the NCAA and what you do and how much you enjoy it. So the NCAA committee is tasked with selection. Uh, that, that's a big task. Um, we select 20 at-large teams. I think this fall it might be now down to 19 at-large teams. I think we had one more automatic bid come in this year. So the, the task of selecting uh, who makes those last spots in the NCAA tournament is a big task. Uh, and after several years being in it, we got a pretty good feel for the lay of the land and uh, which teams are the key players. And uh, it, it's a big task being on the NCAA committee. This, this will be my fourth year serving on the committee and uh, my fourth and final year on the committee. And then we rotate off. And it's certainly a service role. And it's a role, what, what I've enjoyed most about is being able to attend the Final Fours as part of the committee and watching the best teams in the country play. So, you know, there's a big task on Selection Sunday, but then uh, once you get past Selection Sunday, you get to enjoy the Final Four and watching our best teams in the country compete. Well, that included you last year, so that's another way to get there as well as uh, you're doing it uh, from both fronts. All right, well, meanwhile, on this program, if you've listened at all, you've heard us talk a lot about uh, how United Soccer Coaches is all-inclusive, and one of the reasons and, and ways they're doing that is with these various advocacy councils, and uh, your counterpart for the men for Division Three, John Bourne with the North Park men, and you for on the women's side uh, are, have stepped up. You uh, lead that part of the Advocacy Council. Why did you want to do that, and uh, what do you like most about it? What I like most about it is just the, trying to unify the voice of Division III. Uh, the, the tasks that we went after early were big tasks. We uh, Right now, we don't have a day of rest at the NCAA tournament in between games. It's very difficult to play soccer back-to-back -back days. So uh, as, as a unified by you know we, we interviewed all of our student athletes that are in Division III, men's and women's soccer players and coaches, and Overwhelmingly, like 90 to 95% said, we would like to have a day of rest at NCAA tournament games. Uh, so, so the fact that we could try to pursue this and maybe get a voice with the NCAA committee, we have had a voice. We've been in the room being able to try to work out a way to get this done. Uh, and we're at least on the board right now for continuing the conversation of getting a day of rest at the Final Four. Division Three is the only division that doesn't have a day of rest at its national championship and if we can get that one right for the next decade, that's going to make a big difference for soccer players. Soccer players need a day of rest between a semifinal and a national final when games are being played at the highest level. So we're hoping the NCAA hears us and will eventually at least take the step of giving us a day of rest at our final four. It's not always a perfect formula to be a great player and become a great coach, and I doubt he would tell us this because I can tell already he's a pretty humble guy, but at Olivet Nazarene University outside of Chicago, Wood was the team captain, team MVP, all-region, and an NAIA academic All-American. He graduated from ONU as the school's second all-time leading scorer, and he was a three-time Olympic development player, so clearly you knew how to play the game. You also <laughs> wanted to coach. You got your United Soccer Coaches Premier Coaching Diploma. But one of the things I liked about uh, what you told me before we got on, it was uh, a brother of yours that opened your eyes to the values of D3 soccer. Go ahead and tell that story. Absolutely. So my youngest brother was the best player in the family by a long ways. He was a high school All-American and uh, the Gatorade Player of the Year in the state of Iowa. And then he chose a Division three school. And myself and my middle brother, Dan, we thought he was crazy for choosing a Division three because he was a lot better than us. Uh, and he 
here we you know we got scholarships and he was a lot better and he was choosing to go to a school that didn't have scholarships and he he chose to go to Wheaton College Illinois uh, and had a phenomenal soccer experience and that really opened my eyes to the possibilities of Division three that there were people out there that would choose Division three if it was the right fit academically and the right type of school for them and and also watching his Wheaton teams compete I could admit even with an ego of a, of a 22 year old male that these Wheaton teams were better than our teams. Uh, and so it really opened my eyes to the level of play that was possible at Division three and the quality of student-athlete that will choose to attend a Division three college. So, yeah, it, was, it took a younger brother to open my eyes, and it was kind of right at the timeline that I was getting into coaching. And uh, so then when I was interviewing, I was just oh, I was willing now to look at Division three schools and really happy I did. Well, yeah, because you were even tracking, uh, particularly at Gardner-Webb, as they were making the transition from D2 to D1, where you could have stepped up. You thought maybe that was your key, but you kind of, you know, back and back to your brother, right, to say, no, I'm going D3. Oh, absolutely. And that, so that year, I uh, I went to watch the Final Four. Wheaton was hosting. Uh, so, so I went to watch the Final Four. And I watched that year. I watched the Wheaton College women play the College of New Jersey. And in that game, at the time, I was willing to admit that both these teams could have beat our Gardner-Webb team. Here's a Gardner-Webb team competing at Division One, doing well at Division I. Uh, but I thought... There are more good players on this Wheaton team and this College of New Jersey team, so if this is possible, then I, then I would like that opportunity. And then when a job came open in Texas, uh, you know, in one of the great soccer hotbeds in the United States, and that's that's been a big deal for us, is just being located so close to Dallas, Austin, Houston, great soccer hotbeds. Uh, you know, I had to jump at that opportunity. Um, to try to replicate maybe what they were doing at schools like Wheaton and Illinois. Do you remember, since this uh, show is about coaches and talking about coaches, the name of the coach for your brother at Wheaton? Absolutely. Joe, Joe Bean's one of the great legends of college soccer, and I think his 40 years at Wheaton, he's made a difference, not just in the way they were as soccer players, but as they were as young men and how they choose to live their lives. Joe Bean is a special difference maker in the college soccer community that we should all, we should all be trying to emulate guys like Joe Bean. And finally, uh, we talk about the fact that United Soccer Coaches definitely pays attention to D3, and they do it, and they mean it. Uh, talk about what that means to you. Well, well clearly, I, I think the United Soccer Coaches, you know, we there are many ways that you guys support Division III, uh, always on these podcasts, but then with the All-America Banquets. Uh, last year, I think the Division Three men's and women's soccer were among the most heavily attended at the, the All-America Banquet and, and recognizing the elite players in Division Three. Uh, United Soccer Coach has always just done a great job of, of making a difference for our Division Three student-athletes. Marcus Wood, the head coach at Hardin-Simmons, Abilene, Texas, Final Four a year ago, and, and heads up the Division Three Advocacy Chair for United Soccer Coaches. Listen, good luck as you start the season. Love to see you back there in the Final Four, and definitely look forward to seeing you, Marcus, in Chicago for the convention. Sounds great. Thank you, Dean. Thank you, Marcus Wood. Thank you, Tony Miola. Thank you, Rob Kehoe. Thank you, everybody at United Soccer Coaches, Sean Chevro, Mike Knipper, Jeff Van Dusen, Steve Veal, Ian Barker, Lynn Burling-Manuel. The list goes on. They're all great. Pat Madden, you're pretty good, too. I'm Dean Linky. We'll see you next week, same time, same channel. United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by Team Snap. Still managing your club or league on paper and spreadsheets? Go paperless with Team Snap. Their customers save up to 50 15 hours each week on communication, registration, scheduling, and more. Plus, they have way fewer paper cuts. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with TeamSnap. Go to TeamSnap.com slash United.